Katherine Hepburn Wrangles a Leopard, Locksteps with Cary Grant, Learns the Circus Grip, and Sets Out to Prove She Isn't a Has-Been. From 1938, it's Bringing Up Baby. I'm Shannon, and you're listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. In 1932, Katherine Hepburn arrived in Hollywood. With a starring role in her very first film, Kate's path in Hollywood was already different. A Best Actress Oscar for her third film further proved that Kate was one of the screen's most talented actresses. Katherine Hepburn, it seemed, could do no wrong. Oh, wait. Yeah. Apparently, she could. After such a skyrocketing start, Kate found herself labeled box office poison and extremely unpopular with the public. Hepburn's disfavor with audiences was unfortunate, even more so because it kept filmgoers from appreciating some of the finest work of her career, namely 1938's Bringing Up Baby. Though not the gargantuan flop legend now portrays, there's no doubt that on its initial release, Bringing Up Baby was a gem that slipped by audiences, a masterpiece only discovered by later generations once the film began to appear on television. And what's not to like about this rather cult classic? As Hepburn herself said of Bringing Up Baby, quote, The script was a good one, Cary Grant was really wonderful in it, and I was good too. And The Leopard was excellent. Unquote. Let's go through the plot of the film, then I'll cover Kate's fascinating arrival in Hollywood, the making of Bringing Up Baby, and the curious box office poison label that almost ruins Kate's career, and her game plan to get back on top. Dr. David Huxley, Cary Grant, is a paleontologist on the verge of finishing the great work of his career, the reconstruction of a brontosaurus skeleton. All David needs is the final bone, the intercostal clavicle. A telegram informs David that the long-awaited bone will be delivered to his home the next day, which coincidentally is the day David's scheduled to marry his assistant-slash-fiancé, the incredibly stuffy and quite boring Alice Swallow, Virginia Walker. But then David meets the zany Susan Vance, Catherine Hepburn, And she ruins everything. David and Susan first cross paths on the golf course later that afternoon. For David, it's a business game, played as he tries to charm the attorney, Alexander Peabody, George Irving, into convincing a client to donate $1 million to David's museum. But for the devil-may-care Susan, her day at the golf course is just another day of fun. Susan doesn't seem to notice when she picks up David's golf ball and finishes her game with it. Or when she hijacks David's car and drives it home from the golf course after smashing it into surrounding cars and a tree. Susan's antics on the golf course and David's frantic responses 
take David down a few notches in the esteem of Mr. Peabody. David hopes to redeem himself that evening over dinner with Mr. Peabody at a fancy restaurant. But then Susan shows up. If David thought her behavior on the golf course was embarrassing, the havoc Susan causes at the restaurant almost destroys him. She ruins David's top hat, splits his tails, and inspires the most embarrassing exit from the restaurant as David, in a gentlemanly act, attempts to cover Susan's exposed behind when the back panel of her dress falls off. They lockstep out of the restaurant right past Mr. Peabody. All eyes are glued on this odd duo who seem to literally be joined at the hips. David correctly assumes that this latest series of undignified acts has completely blown his chances of getting the $1 million for the museum. Meanwhile, Susan's obvious infatuation with David has turned to love. Aware that he's to be married, Susan begins to think up ways she can thwart David's upcoming nuptials. And a perfect excuse to monopolize David's time comes the next day. As David excitedly receives the intercostal clavicle for his brontosaurus, Susan receives a pet leopard. Yes, you heard that right, a leopard. It's a tame leopard, but as far as Susan is concerned, David doesn't have to know that detail. She calls David to tell him about the unique delivery and gets him over to her apartment after pretending that the leopard attacked her. David arrives to find Susan is just fine, and that Baby, as the leopard is called, is curiously soothed whenever he hears the song, I can't give you anything but love. David is mad, but Susan somehow convinces him to help her take Baby to her family farm in Connecticut. David makes a poor choice and brings the rare intercostal clavicle on the road trip to Connecticut, and as luck would have it, Susan's dog George steals the bone and buries it somewhere on the farm. Then Susan steals David's clothes while he's in the shower so she can have more one-on-one -on -one time with him, for obviously David can't leave Connecticut or Susan without his clothes. And it's while David, garbed in a writing habit that's about two sizes too small, and Susan chase George around the farm looking for the bone, that they meet Susan's Aunt Elizabeth, Mae Robson, who coincidentally is the client Mr. Peabody was trying to convince to donate $1 million to David's museum. Can things get any worse for David? Actually, they can. Baby escapes from the barn Susan locked him in, so David calls the zoo to track him down and take the leopard off their hands. But then, David discovers that Baby was meant to be a gift from Susan's brother to Aunt Elizabeth, who apparently has always wanted a leopard. Now it's up to David and Susan to find Baby and return him to Aunt Elizabeth before the zookeepers get him. While roaming the wilds of Connecticut, looking for Baby and singing I Can't Give You Anything But Love, David and Susan find themselves in jail. Their misadventures and unbelievable leopard hunting story convince Constable Slocum, Walter Catlett, that David and Susan are dangerous and should stay behind bars. Susan probably just makes things worse by concocting mobster identities for herself and David, swinging door Susie and Jerry the Nipper, 
and by weaving tall tales about their daring heists. But Susan's tales do get Constable Slocum to let her out of the jail cell, and she escapes to find Baby. The trouble is, the leopard Susan finds and wrangles back to jail to prove that she and David are innocent isn't Baby. It's a wild leopard from the traveling circus that escaped after mauling a performer. When the real baby shows up at the jail, it's clear that the other leopard, the one with Susan, is dangerous. After being pushed around all day, David proves himself a real hero and coaxes the dangerous leopard into a jail cell and locks the door. David may have missed his wedding and lost the intercostal clavicle, but at least Baby has been successfully retrieved and he and Susan are still alive. David returns to his normal, Susan-free life at the museum. But as he works on the brontosaurus, it's clear that David misses the excitement of being around Susan. So when she shows up with the intercostal clavicle and the good news that the museum will get Aunt Elizabeth's $1 million after all, David realizes that his day with Susan was the best day of his life. From a scaffold above the dinosaur, David declares his love for her. Susan then excitedly climbs up a ladder to be close to David, but like everywhere else she goes, chaos follows. The brontosaurus begins to crumble, and David's hard work of the last several years falls to the ground. But before Susan can go down with the dinosaur, David catches her by the wrist and pulls her safely up onto the scaffold. As Susan apologizes profusely for ruining his dinosaur, David defeatedly accepts that life with Susan will be messy. But it most certainly won't be boring. And that's the end of the film. If you remember from my introduction podcast on Katherine Hepburn, Kate basically always knew that she wanted to be not just an actress, but a star. So much so that when asked what she thought about the communally-minded group theater after attending a lecture by the revered Harold Clerman, Kate replied that, quote, This may be alright for you people if you want it, but you see, I'm going to be a star. Unquote. The group theater, which required all of its members to take an oath promising to put the good of the group above their own personal success, was definitely not the place for the unashamedly stardom-oriented Katherine Hepburn. So when Kate got her big break on Broadway with a showy role in 1932's The Warrior's Husband, it was a dream come true. Suddenly, Katherine Hepburn was a Broadway sensation, and two big Hollywood studios, RKO and Paramount, were courting her. Also courting Kate was one of the most talented agents of both the East and West Coasts. Leland Hayward was handsome, smart, motivated, and passionate about ensuring the success of his clients. And lucky for Kate, after seeing her fascinating performance in The Warrior's Husband, Leland believed in her star potential with his entire being. Kate signed on with Hayward, but made one thing crystal clear to her new agent— since she was so special, Katherine Hepburn would not go to Hollywood on just any run-of-the-mill contract player deal. Kate, aware of her worth, declared she wouldn't settle for anything less than a starring film role and a contract guaranteeing her $1,500 a week. 
In today's dollars, that's the equivalent of about $20,500 a week. Special indeed. $1,500 a week was a steep price to pay for an actress who had but one standout Broadway role to her name. So it's a real testament to Leland Hayward's negotiating skills that he convinced RKO to meet Kate's demands. Especially because Kate's screen tests for the studio didn't turn out so great. Before RKO made their offer, Kate, still in New York, did an obligatory screen test in which she stubbornly kept her back to the camera most of the time. It was, well, a pretty dumb move. But it worked for Katherine Hepburn and won her an ally at the studio who soon became one of her best friends. For director George Cukor, Kate's back-to-the-camera strategy brought emotion and significance to the screen test. As Cukor remembered of seeing Kate on film for the first time, quote, She had this very definite knowledge and feeling of the camera. She was quite unlike anybody I'd ever seen. I thought, I suppose right away, she's too odd, it won't work. But at one moment in a very emotional scene, she picked up a glass. The camera focused on her back. There was an enormous feeling, a weight, about the manner in which she picked up the glass. Unquote. RKO executive David Oselznik didn't share Cukor's enthusiasm for this Hepburn girl. So Cukor enlisted the help of his friends on the lot to win Selznick and the other executives over. As Cukor tried to convince screenwriter Adela Rogers St. John's, quote, Hepburn is too marvelous. She'll be greater than Garbo. Nobody wants her but me, so come and help me fight for her. You don't need to see the screen test. It's a foul test anyway. She looks like a boa constrictor on a fast, but she's great. Unquote. Thanks to the combined faith and efforts of Leland Hayward and George Cukor, Kate signed with RKO and got her $1,500 a week salary. With a starring role in Cukor's prestigious next film, A Bill of Divorcement, on July 3, 1932, Katherine Hepburn was on a train bound for Hollywood. Luddy, ever the supportive husband, saw her off, while Kate's good friend, Laura Harding, went along for the Hollywood adventure. Katherine Hepburn's arrival in California may be one of the least glamorous and physically painful of any star in Hollywood history. It certainly couldn't have been what Kate herself had in mind when she selected a very distinguished outfit, specially made for her by Elizabeth Hawes, one of New York's most sought-after designers, to wear as she descended the train in Pasadena. Kate herself describes the, um, interesting outfit best. Quote, It was sort of a Quaker, gray-blue silk, grosgrain suit. The skirt was flared and very long. The coat was rather like a 19th century riding coat with tails. The blouse was a turtleneck with a ruffle around the top of the turtle. And the hat... Oh, well, the hat was sort of a gray-blue straw dish upside down on my head. I had long hair screwed up tight, and the dishpan sat on top of this. A bit formal and more than a little eccentric, but it had been very expensive, that whole costume, and I had great faith in it. Unquote. Does this outfit sound very cute to you? If it doesn't, that's because it wasn't. To make the whole getup even worse, 
While still on the train, just past Albuquerque, Kate sustained an injury. Kate was out on the observation deck trying to catch a glimpse of the full moon when she felt something land in her left eye. And it didn't feel good. Quote, Oh, something in my eye? It was indeed something in my eye. Several things, in fact. Tiny pieces of steel rail. Three of them. They lodged in my left eye in the white part, scratching the inside of my upper lid every time I blinked. They were there and would not move. Unquote. And so Catherine Hepburn arrived in California with red, watery eyes, wearing what appeared to be a pancake on her head, and a severe outfit that looked uncomfortably hot in Pasadena's 90-plus degree July weather. According to Kate, when she and Laura got off the train, they were greeted by Leland Hayward and his partner, Myron Selznick. Selznick had never met Kate before and didn't know which of the two women was their new client. Quote, Which one? asked Selznick. The one with the funny hat, replied Hayward. You're kidding. We got $1,500 a week for that? She's an original, Hayward insisted. Very. What does she drink? Get a load of those eyes. Unquote. The first thing Kate asked her new agents was where she could find a doctor to get the steel filings out of her eye. But no one seemed to hear her. Kate and Lara were shuttled straight to RKO. Catherine Hepburn would spend her first day at a Hollywood movie studio with three pieces of steel wedged in her eye. Doesn't that sound fun? In fact, the only person on the RKO lot who seemed to notice that Kate's eyes didn't look healthy was her soon-to-be co-star, John Barrymore, as in Drew's grandfather. Barrymore, a notorious drinker, was sympathetic to this newcomer who, it seemed, enjoyed a drink or two herself. Barrymore handed Kate a small bottle and said, quote, I have that same trouble. Try this, two drops in each eye. Unquote. Well, at least someone noticed and tried to help. Unfortunately for Kate, it wasn't until Arkeo sent her home in the evening that she and Lara found the eye specialist who successfully dug the steel filings out. Meeting the bleary-eyed Kate that day, RKO executive David Oselznik worried about his investment. In Selznick's own words, this tall, skinny girl entirely covered with freckles and wearing the most appalling and incredible clothes I have ever seen in my life certainly wasn't his idea of the typical movie star. And she was already so bossy and confident, telling George Cukor that the costume sketches he'd approved for her character were all wrong and not nearly classy enough. But despite this physically painful, exhausting, and perhaps not-so-promising first day, Kate soon proved she was well worth the $1,500 a week. A bill of divorcement was a smash hit, mostly because audiences couldn't get enough of Katherine Hepburn. With her sharp features and intelligent, articulate voice, Kate was something new. She was different. As Cukor put it, audiences loved her because she was so full of life and vivacity on screen. Quote, Kate was good at rehearsals, but she didn't really come alive until the camera closed in on her. 
I had a rough idea she was doing well during filming, but she sprang to life when I saw the rushes. Her odd awkwardness, her odd shifts of emphasis, these were proof of her being alive on the screen. Unquote. With the praise of audiences and critics alike, RKO decided to pick up Kate's option, keeping her at the studio and raising that $1,500 weekly salary with each proceeding film she made. Not bad for a brand new star with one film under her belt. Though Kate's next film, Christopher Strong, was a dud, her third film, Morning Glory, won Hepburn her first of four Best Actress Oscars. Her follow-up role as Joe March in the classic Little Women, one of Kate's personal favorite roles, sealed her reputation as not just the screen's new It Girl, but as potentially its greatest actress. Katherine Hepburn could do no wrong. But when you're at the top, the only place to go is down. And unfortunately for Kate, seven of the next 11 films she made failed. Some of them, such as her turn as a Scottish noblewoman who enjoys disguising herself as a gypsy in The Little Minister, or as an uneducated backwoods girl with healing powers in Spitfire, were downright embarrassing. These seven inferior films regrettably led fickle audiences to either forget about or stay away from the four amazing films Kate made between 1934 and 1938. Her performances in Alice Adams, Stage Door, Bringing Up Baby, and Holiday are truly flawless. And of these four Hepburn films that were so overshadowed by her lackluster work of the period, one was an unsung masterpiece. By summer of 1937, director Howard Hawks had collected a $2,500 weekly salary from RKO for nearly a year, and he'd yet to make a single film for the studio under his two-picture contract. RKO production head Sam Briskin decided it was time to put Hawks to work and gave him the freedom to choose his next project. The story Hawks soon decided on was called Bringing Up Baby. Bringing Up Baby first appeared as a short story written by Hagar Wilde in the April 10th, 1937 issue of Collier's. Hawks, charmed by the short story that made him laugh out loud, immediately saw its film potential. Of course, filming with a live leopard, changed from the panther in Wilde's original short story, posed problems. But it was a complication Hawks could accept. Another complication was Katherine Hepburn. Though Carol Lombard was one of the first actresses considered for the Susan Vance role, Kate quickly became the only candidate. Under her current contract, the increasingly unpopular Hepburn still had three films to make for RKO. By keeping the budget for Baby reasonable and the production schedule tight, Sam Briskin hoped the studio would end up with a Katherine Hepburn film that could actually make money. While Kate was pretty much a shoo-in for bringing up Baby, the role of David Huxley proved more difficult to cast. Even Skippy the dog was cast as George before Cary Grant was finally decided on. Grant only just emerged a bonafide star with 1937's The Awful Truth, had come a long way since starring opposite Kate in 1935's Sylvia Scarlet. 
for Sylvia Scarlett, Carrie had earned $15,000 to Kate's $50,000. But by September of 1937, when production on Bringing Up Baby began, Grant commanded $75,000 for the film compared to Kate's $72,500. Now that's some clear evidence of the increasing popularity of Cary Grant and the decreasing popularity of Katherine Hepburn. In hindsight, Howard Hawks would say that no one but Cary Grant could play the David Huxley role. Quote, It's pretty hard to think of anybody but Cary Grant in that type of stuff. He was so far the best that there isn't anybody who can compare to him. Unquote. But when filming on Baby began, Grant was unsure of himself. He didn't know if he could convincingly play an intellectual. The key, as it turned out, was all in the glasses. Howard Hawks recommended that Carrie look to silent film comedian Harold Lloyd, famous for his glasses and daring physical comedy, for inspiration. It was a genius recommendation that Grant took to heart. Mimicking Lloyd's bespectacled look, Carrie found a pair of horn-rimmed glasses that became integral to his portrayal of David Huxley. Interestingly enough, it was a look that Cary Grant returned to in his later years, using his thick, horn-rimmed glasses to hide the signs of aging around his eyes without having to resort to surgery, of which Grant had a phobia. According to Harold Lloyd's granddaughter, Susan, Carrie even met with her grandfather to develop the David Huxley character. Quote, Carrie went over to talk to Harold about it. Then, Harold worked with him on being the shy, retiring type with the glasses. Hawks wanted Carrie to do his version of Harold's fumbling and nervous gestures. Unquote. So with the inspiration and guidance of Harold Lloyd, Carrie Grant was good to go. But Katherine Hepburn was another story. For some reason, when filming of Bringing Up Baby began, Kate's humor just wasn't translating onto the screen. As Howard Hawks put it, quote, I tried to explain to her that the great clowns, Keaton, Chaplin, Lloyd, simply weren't out there making funny faces. They were serious, sad, solemn, and the humor sprang from what happened to them. Carrie understood this at once. Kate didn't. Unquote. When Hawks himself couldn't get this message across to his leading lady, he brought in veteran Ziegfeld Follies comic Walter Catlett to explain it to her. Where Hawks failed, Catlett succeeded. The comic reenacted one of Kate's scenes with Cary Grant from the film, playing it with complete seriousness. And it was as if a light switch went on in Kate's head. From there on out, as Hawks remembered, quote, she played perfectly, not trying to be funny, but being very, very natural and herself, unquote. The loyal Hepburn was so grateful to Walter Catlett for his help, she insisted that Hawks create a role for him in bringing up baby, which Hawks did. You can catch Walter Catlett, the man who taught Catherine Hepburn how to be funny, as Constable Slocum in the film. As filming progressed, it was clear that Howard Hawks didn't much care what the brass at RKO said about sticking to a tight budget and production schedule. Hawks' number one goal was to make a good movie, 
a fact observed by Sam Briskin's assistant, Lou Lesky. As Lesky warned his boss in a studio memo, quote, I know because the gentleman has said, in so many words, that he's only concerned with making a picture that will be a personal credit to Mr. Hawks, regardless of its cost. You're telling him the other day that it would be suicidal to make a Hepburn picture for seven or $800,000? I know made no impression on him at all. Hawks is determined, in his own quiet, reserved, soft-spoken manner, to have his way about the making of this picture. He doesn't give a damn about how much the picture will cost to make. Unquote. In Hawks' defense, the salaries RKO agreed to pay him, Grant, and Hepburn consumed so much of the film's budget, it would have been impossible for him to make Bringing Up Baby for less than $767,000, which, best case scenario, already put the film in the price range that Briskin feared would mean a $0 profit. It may have been a nightmare for the studio financials, but I can't help but admire Hawks' mentality. His primary concern was making Bringing Up Baby a stellar film, and nothing was going to get in the way of his accomplishing this goal. One way Howard Hawks ensured that he had a masterpiece in the making was by encouraging his stars to improvise and contribute their own humorous dialogue and bits to the screenplay. And Kate and Carrie, who had a blast working together on the film, were only too happy to oblige. As Hepburn put it, quote, Carrie and I worked out an awful lot of stuff together. We'd make things up to do on the screen, how to work out those laughs and bringing up Baby, unquote. The famous scene in Baby where the back panel of Kate's dress falls off and she and Carrie lockstep out of the restaurant as he tries to cover her exposed rear with his front was inspired by an actual experience Grant had at New York's Roxy Theater. Attending a show one evening, Carrie was seated in the balcony with the head of the Metropolitan Museum and his wife. At one point, Carrie stood to let Mrs. Metropolitan Museum pass by on her way to the ladies' room. Noticing his fly was down, Carrie zipped it up, only to get Mrs. Met's gown caught in his zipper. The lockstep the two had to do in their quest to find a pair of pliers to release her dress from his fly worked as Carrie's inspiration for bringing up baby. It's a funny scene in the film, but I sure wish I could have seen Carrie's real-life dress-in-the-zipper experience. Grant's greatest contribution to the film was probably his past as a circus performer. Before he became Cary Grant, young Archie Leach honed his natural physical dexterity in the circus, which came in handy for the final scene in Bringing Up Baby, when the brontosaurus crumbles to the ground as Susan dangles from David's strong grip. Grant used his circus know-how to train the equally coordinated Kate in one of his old circus grips. So what you see in the film is actually Kate and Carrie. No doubles were needed. Carrie Grant remembered that, quote, I trained Kate myself. She was fearless. There was no mattress on the floor. I had her let me grab her, not by the hands, because her arms would pop out of their sockets. I grabbed her by the wrists, and we were up there tossing back and forth as the skeleton crashes. It was the scariest thing I've ever done, but Kate said it was wonderful. Unquote. 
one of Kate's improvised contributions to bringing a baby were the hilariously fitting mobster nicknames Susan gives herself and David in the jail scene, Swinging Door Susie and Jerry the Nipper. The fact that Kate came up with the names herself puts Carrie's next line in the film, quote, she's making all this up out of motion pictures she's seen, unquote, into context. Jerry is the name of Grant's character in The Awful Truth, the film released during the making of Bringing Up Baby that made him a star. Another of Kate's contributions to Bringing Up Baby was her admirable ease with the leopard, Nisa, during filming. Hawks often let Nisa prowl around freely, which completely freaked out Cary Grant. He shot as few scenes as possible with the animal and opted for a body double whenever appropriate. To have a little fun with her understandably jumpy co-star, Kate and Howard Hawks found a stuffed leopard and dropped it through the roof of Grant's dressing room. Wow, he was out of there like lightning, Kate recalled in her autobiography. Sounds like a pretty awesome prank. Unless you're Cary Grant. As for herself and Nisa, Kate said that, quote, I didn't have brains enough to be scared, so I did a lot of the scenes with the leopard just roaming around. The first scene I had with the leopard was in a floor-length negligee. The leopard followed me around, pushing at my thigh, which they had covered with perfume. I would pat its head, and the scene went very satisfactorily. Unquote. Even Nisa's trainer, Olga Celeste, was impressed by Kate's ease and control of her nerves around the animal, expressing her opinion that Kate could have a very successful career as an animal trainer ahead of her. So there you go. Animal trainer. A backup career for Katherine Hepburn. During one scene, however, the swirl of Kate's dress angered the leopard, and Nisa made a jump for her back. As Kate remembered, quote, Olga brought the whip down right on his head. That was the end of my freedom with the leopard. Unquote. There's no doubt that Howard Hawks's encouragement of improvisation contributed to bringing up Baby's inflated budget and delayed production schedule. But it wasn't the only reason the film got so behind. The fun Kate and Cary Grant had in bringing their natural humor to the screen often meant that the two stars had a hard time pulling it together when it came time to actually film a scene. Coupled with the difficulties of getting the dog and the leopard to behave, there were days when Hawks literally shot only 24 seconds of usable footage. As Hawks good-naturedly shared of these difficulties on bringing up Baby, quote, Now if you don't think that one was a hard film to make, ugh, the darn leopard. And then the dog running around with the bone. Kate and Carrie had a scene in which he said, what happened to the bone? And she said, it's in the box or something like that. Well, they started to laugh. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. And at four o'clock in the afternoon, we were still trying to make the scene. And I didn't think we were ever going to get it. I tried changing the line. It didn't do any good. They were just putting dirty connotations on it, and then they'd go off into peals of laughter. Unquote. Sounds like a frustrating, but incredibly fun set. I have to share one story when the culprit to a filming delay was none other than Katherine Hepburn's sass. One day, Howard Hawks was trying to get a scene filmed, 
and Kate was talking so much she didn't hear her director call for quiet on the set. His second call for quiet also went unheeded by Hepburn. So next, as Hawks recalled, quote, I just stopped everybody and all of a sudden, in the middle of talking, she stopped and said, what's the matter? I said, oh, I just wondered how long you were going to keep up this imitation of a parrot. And she said, I'd like to talk to you. And she led me around the back. She then said, you mustn't say things like that to me. Somebody will drop a lamp on you. These are my friends around here. I looked up at the man on the lamps. When I was a prop man, this fellow had been an electrician. I'd known him for heaven knows how many years. I said, Pete, if you had your choice of dropping a lamp on Miss Hepburn or me, who would you drop it on? And he said, get out of the way, will you, Mr. Hawks? And Katie looked up at him and looked at me and said, well, I guess I was wrong. And from that time on, she was just marvelous, unquote. Catherine Hepburn may not have been wrong very often, but when she was, she was always a good sport. By the time filming wrapped on January 6, 1938, Bringing Up Baby was over schedule by a staggering 40 days, while the budget had skyrocketed to just over $1 million, roughly 40% above the initial projected budget. Ironically, because of the overtime clauses and their respective contracts, when the film didn't wrap on time, Hawks' pay more than doubled, from $88,000 to $202,500, while Kate and Carrie's salaries both almost doubled. To turn a profit, Bringing Up Baby would have to be an incredibly successful film. And at first, things looked good. On January 17, 1938, preview audiences in Los Angeles loved the film. And when Baby officially premiered on the West Coast in February, the film's future continued to look promising. Then something funny happened. As Baby traveled east, audiences lost interest. Bringing Up Baby didn't do great in the Midwest, but it was the film's New York premiere at Radio City Music Hall on March 3, 1938, that really sealed its fate. After one week of poor turnout at Radio City, Bringing Up Baby was pulled, earning a measly $70,000 at the theater. It seemed that filmgoers believed the snide review of New York Times critic Frank S. Nugent, who said of Baby that, quote, If you've never been to the movies, Bringing Up Baby will be all new to you, a zany-ridden product of the goofy farce school. But who hasn't been to the movies? Unquote. Though Baby grossly underperformed at the box office during its initial release, it's important to point out that, similar to It's a Wonderful Life, Bringing Up Baby wasn't the complete flop that legend now paints. The film grossed $715,000 domestically and $400,000 overseas. If Baby wouldn't have gone $365,000 over budget, it probably would have come close to breaking even. But RKO saw bringing up Baby as evidence that a surefire way to lose money on a film was to put Katherine Hepburn in it. As far as the studio was concerned, Kate was responsible for Baby's disappointing reviews and box office performance. 
RKO wanted to get rid of Kate, and they wanted to get rid of her fast. So the studio gave Kate an ultimatum, accept a co-starring role in a new film with the highly promising title of Mother Carrie's Chickens, or buy out the rest of her contract for $220,000. Well, obviously Katherine Hepburn wasn't going to appear in a film named Mother Carrie's Chickens. And thanks to the financial know-how of her dad, who Kate sent her paychecks to each month, she had the $220,000 saved up to buy out her RKO contract. And that's just what she did. Not long after the wide release of Bringing Up Baby, Kate's unpopularity with the public became official. On May 4, 1938, the Independent Theater Owners of America took out an ad in The Hollywood Reporter, titled, Wake Up, Hollywood Producers!, the ad continued to name six actresses and one actor whose box office draw was nil. Quote, Practically all of the major studios are burdened with stars whose public appeal is negligible and are receiving tremendous salaries necessitated by contractual obligations. Among those players whose dramatical ability is unquestioned, but whose box office draw is nil, can be numbered Mae West, Edward Arnold, Garbo, Joan Crawford, Katherine Hepburn, and many others. These stars are poison at the box office. Unquote. Kate's salaries on Bringing Up Baby and her following film at Columbia Pictures, Holiday, were $122,000 and $150,000, respectively. But after the box office poison ad came out, the only film offer Kate received valued her services at $10,000. Surely nothing to complain about, but obviously an exponential drop from what she'd earned just months before. They say I'm a has-been. If I weren't laughing so hard, I might cry, was Hepburn's public response to the box office poison label. But privately, she was worried. To Kate, it seemed that the stardom she'd fought so hard to achieve was slipping through her fingers. But Katherine Hepburn was a fighter, and she knew she could battle this box office poison thing and come out on top. So it was goodbye Hollywood and back to the people and the place Kate knew would buoy her up and help her figure out a new game plan. Kate went home. Quote, It seemed to me that I was in a very odd situation. Certainly, I'd done some very boring pictures, but then I'd done four really good pictures, and they just hadn't done well. They'd done okay, but not as well as they deserved. That's really why I felt I should get a breath of fresh air, a real change of atmosphere." Unquote. Catherine Hepburn would not return to the movies for two years. And when she did make her Hollywood comeback, it would be as the toast of Broadway with ownership of the season's hottest play and a guarantee that Kate herself would play the property's coveted leading role on screen. They said she was box office poison, a has-been. But Katherine Hepburn would prove them all wrong. And that's it for Bringing Up Baby. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, macronsandmimi.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. 
And join me next time on Vanguard of Hollywood for Katherine Hepburn's inspiring Hollywood comeback film with two of classic Hollywood's most talented and timeless leading men rounding out an all-star cast. You don't want to miss 1940s The Philadelphia Story.